The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Nine days to a possible government shutdown and no breakthrough yet on a plan to avoid it. Welcome to the fastest show in politics as the Speaker spars with the Senate Majority Leader over funding the government, operations, Israel, Ukraine funding, and a lot more where that came from. We're joined in a moment by Congressman French Hill, the Republican from Arkansas, serves on the Financial Services, Foreign Affairs, and Intelligence Committees, and is at the center of the debate over funding, as well as the one around renewing the government's warrantless spying powers. We'll have the representative here live from Capitol Hill in just a moment. It was a big night for Democrats, a big election night, of course. We'll look at Dem victories from Virginia to Kentucky to Ohio with our signature panel. Of course, a lot to discuss, as always, with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. We'll keep you posted as well on Wall Street trading throughout the hour because we do want to start immediately in our conversation with Congressman French Hill, who is with us from Capitol Hill. Uh, Congressman, it's great to see you and thank you for coming back to see us. Can you give us a status check here? And it, we're, we're, You've got guys like me asking you about a potential shutdown every day as you try to figure out a plan on this, but it's yeah. getting awfully close. What do you know? Well, Joe, it's good to be with you. Look, uh, I've encouraged our, our speaker, our conference, we need to pass a stopgap uh, continuing resolution uh, for a period of time so that we can get the rest of these spending bills completed in the House and the Senate and go to conference and enact 2024 spending. I'm supportive of a variety of ways to do that. We could do one uh, in a two-step manner, part of it uh, in early December and the balance of it in January, do it all until January, but we need that time to go past the November 17th deadline. We lost a lot of time up here, Joe, messing around with uh, just a handful of people, uh, kicking Kevin McCarthy out of his job. We've got to get those weeks of work back. Well, that's right. And I, are you referring to this idea of the laddered CR congressman in which there would be different expirations for various programs and agencies? Is that what's getting the most support in your conference? Personally, I think simpler is better, and therefore I think a straightforward uh, stopgap continuing resolution until, say, the third week of January is probably the best thing to do to not facilitate mm -hmm. the Senate trying to jam the House with a giant omnibus spending bill before Christmas, as is the typical uh, work of the Senate. I think that's uh, the best approach. But the idea of a two-step approach could work if Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans want to do that. In other words, let's take defense, yeah. state and foreign operations, uh, transportation, housing and urban development, consensus bills, and get those finished before December. But I think that takes both houses agreeing to want to do that. What's the point of doing that? That would essentially set up the idea of multiple cliffs, wouldn't it, Congressman? And I, I feel like we've had enough to last us for a while. Yeah. 
Well, look, we want to demonstrate that we don't want to have a government shutdown. So, in effect, the uh, House would be funding government. Uh, they would just do that to try to provide an incentive to the Senate to move faster on the bills that they've already considered. That's the incentive. Another approach, Joe, would be simply to pass a continuing resolution through September 30th, 2024, uh, and say that we're taking off the table a government shutdown and try to encourage the Senate to get their work done uh, like that. We've passed 80% of spending here in the House. They've not yet completed their work in the Senate, but that's why we need this extra time. Well, that's uh, that's one matter that you're dealing with. Of course, we've talked as well, Congressman, about the supplemental budget request for Israel, for Ukraine. We've uh, talked about attaching money for Taiwan and the border to that. That's actually the approach of the White House and the Senate. And it seems like that's being picked apart here in the House. At least that was the case for Israel money. Are you supporting the idea of bringing each of these to the floor <clears throat> separately or will that be handled in conference and you'll have a very different looking bill that might include all of those matters because we're we're getting close to not only a government shutdown but the idea of delaying money to israel and ukraine is making a lot of people nervous congressman for a lot of good reasons right well of course we passed uh, nearly uh, four billion dollars of israel defense spending over almost five weeks ago in the house the senate could have taken that bill up and passed it uh, weeks ago and we wouldn't even we might not even be having this short-term concern about uh, Israel. Last week, you're right, the House did pass the $14 billion request for Israel across the House floor. Strong vote, got 12 Democratic votes uh, with it as well. And in the House, I think we'll get a bipartisan vote for support for our other allies, Ukraine and Taiwan. But there's no doubt that uh, Republican members want to review that and make their recommendations on what that bill should contain. I was in a meeting uh, mm -hmm. for several hours this morning on that. So we are making progress here, and I know they are in the Senate as well. So I expect that we will have a bipartisan vote to support uh, the uh, effort by Ukraine to throw Putin out of their country and also to defend our ally, Taiwan. Interesting, uh, because you know we're hearing a slightly different tune from Chuck Schumer. He took to the floor this morning to say that this uh, bill that uh, Republicans in the House have put together tying Ukraine to border funding is a non-starter in the Senate. Uh, I know that there's a lot of tough talk and sometimes it's not exactly yeah. related to a final product, Congressman, and you know there's a lot of posturing right now, but do you worry that in fact this is creating delays for both <coughs> Israel and Ukraine? Well, first of all, let's make sure we get the bill and the funding right to match the strategy of defending Taiwan against Chinese aggression, making sure Ukraine has the timely material they need to defeat Putin, and make sure Israel has timely uh, stockpiles for their Iron Dome system and for their precision munitions. So let's get the substance right. Then we can get this timing issue right. But I'm, I'm convinced that if we focus on the substance, we'll get the timing uh, correct. And to uh, Senator Schumer's point, well, you've got Senator Jim Lankford of Oklahoma working actively over in the Senate on a border policy that they can get consensus on and get Democratic support for. So, look, I think it's very fluid in both houses. I think both houses are committed to the appropriate amount of funding to defend our allies and their efforts to thwart authoritarian attacks and terrorist attacks. Do you think we're going to survive a government shutdown then? Or, or there could be a couple of days before something is figured out in the short term? Look, I think that's a bad idea. We just don't need to do that. We should, in my view, and, and we didn't do it this week, but I urge that we adopt 
a continuing resolution and get one that 218 Republicans could support and get that done and through the House this week or very early next week, and it doesn't appear that's going to happen. And so once again, we move towards a deadline, but we need that sort of leadership, and that allows us to do the substantive work that we're elected to do in analyzing the right spending programs for all of fiscal 24 and to have the time mm -hmm. to debate uh, those supplemental appropriations that are critical for our allies. Well, as we consider policy that's, uh, that's critical uh, to Americans everywhere, Congressman, there are two things that are getting not enough talk. I think you and I both agree on this. One would be the farm bill, and we'll get to that with an important renewal that could be coming uh, as soon as next month. And then there is FISA, or 702 as some people call it short, that's Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Right. You serve on the Intelligence Committee and you know a lot more about this than certainly I do or most people here, but there is a bipartisan effort uh, to renew what a lot of people see as a controversial measure, a, a warrantless spying by the U.S. Why does this need to happen? Well, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act passed uh, years ago, connected with the post 9-11 world we live in, is very important to America's national security. This is how we use the National uh, Security Agency and other intelligence community participants to make sure we're monitoring people who might do us harm outside the United States. The controversial part is where an American citizen is talking to one of those suspects or terrorists or state actors outside the U.S. How do we listen yeah. in on their conversations, for example? This is where the reform needs to take place. And Darren LaHood of Illinois, Andy Biggs of Arizona have been working together on a reform package that reflects the views of, of uh, certainly the House Republicans and House Democrats have been involved as well because we need the authorities of Section 702 under FISA to make sure that we have the intelligence resources to help protect against a homeland attack or protect against an attack against American interests outside the United States. Well, it's, you know, we're, it's not lost on me that the FBI director, Christopher Wray, uh, said in a hearing, uh, it was, I believe it was just last week, talking about the threats abroad that had spawned from the Hamas attack on Israel, that in fact, domestic terror threats uh, were nearing a high as well right now, that the chatter is getting very noisy. And I wonder, Congressman, if that's your concern, if it's domestic threats to the U.S. or it's uh, something altogether different, why Americans need to see this renewed? Well, FBI Director Ray last week before the Senate did say that. It's very concerning to me that he would raise that level of concern that the information that they pick up through their intelligence sources indicate that America is, is the most at risk it's been since ISIS rose in power in 2014. Some have even said the most at risk since 9-11. And here's how I feel about it. One, we can't let, uh, can't let uh, FISA 702 expire and lose that authority. Secondly, we need to have all of our military on alert around the world. And thirdly, we have an open border, Joe, we have an open border where 169 people on the terror watch list have come across the border in the last year. That's a problem. And so uh, I think that's concerning too, who's coming across this uh, millions of people uh, entering the United States illegally. So I'm concerned about border security from that point of view and who's gotten into our country, local radicalization. You know, back in my hometown of Little Rock, we had a local radicalized Islamic fundamentalist in Memphis, Tennessee, come over to Little Rock and attack our military recruiting base and kill a young man. 
And that's what I think also Director Ray is concerned about. So external threats across the border, external threats around our, to our, our military and our diplomats, and internal mm -hmm. threats by people who are radicalized by terrorism. Will it be renewed by the end of the year? That's my hope, and here's the way to do it. Look, if we can't agree on the precise reforms to the process, let's renew it for a short period of time while we debate those reforms and get them passed. We cannot have a gap in that coverage. So it's a CR for 702. Well, let's not call it that, Joe. We're trying to help get it passed here. <laughs> that's, that's probably not going to help with anyone. Congressman, it's good to see you. Thank you for the time. Congressman French Joe, Hill with, with us with live you. from Capitol Hill, as always, uh, on Bloomberg. And as I mentioned, brings a unique perspective. To think about it. Foreign uh, affairs, financial services, and intelligence committees. You put them all together, and he's coming at this uh, from a different position than a lot of lawmakers. As we assemble our panel now, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us. Bloomberg Politics contributors will start here with the matter of funding our government and the rest. You know, I left for a couple of days, guys. I thought you might have something figured out here. Maybe I should have mentioned that to the congressman. But Rick Davis, this laddered CR seems to be catching on. I don't get a sense that French Hill prefers it. But there seems to be some resonance here. Is that going to be the answer? Well, it's certainly something that the speaker is trying to sell inside the caucus right now. And it's even a question as to whether or not people like French Hill and others uh, are willing to walk down that aisle. I mean, it's kind of a compromise on top of compromises. Uh, it's wrought with problems. It kind of guarantees a shutdown for government for some period of time. Uh, and and it's completely dead on arrival in the Senate. So. Uh, most people I've talked to have absolutely no idea how to actually implement this uh, across the uh, government, across Congress. Uh, and so um, uh, uh, most people are telling me they think that uh, Senate's just going to do a clean CR and get it over there and, and kind of jam the House with it ultimately to, mm -hmm. to just keep the government shut down from happening. Does this just slow things down, Jeannie? We're talking about the back and forth here on Israel funding, on Ukraine, in this case on government funding, dealing with approaches that everyone knows uh, will not lead to a breakthrough or a law. Is that just the story of this period of time? We're just dragging everything in, until a longer wait cycle and in some cases beyond what might be appropriate when you consider two hot wars being fought. Uh, yeah, and, and and you know it, the reality is this is how co Congress usually operates. Um, it takes a long time. They do come to deadlines. I think the representative is absolutely right. The smart thing to do here is to pass a clean CR, negotiate the funding for Israel, Ukraine, and the rest separately, and move this forward. Because let's remember this latter CR. And Joe, you're on fire. You're so right. This multiple cliffs is a great way to describe it. This is not only something that Democrats don't like, but Senate Republicans, Susan Collins and others, have said this is just making the pain far worse. Let's get a clean CR. Let's get it through. Let's negotiate what needs to go out for Israel and Ukraine. And let's move forward is the smart thing to do. The concern is that may not happen. And it's really in the speaker's hands at this point. Rick, can't you see the cable news channels, you know, with five or six countdown clocks all ending at different times? It's the multiple cliff show. Uh, it does make you wonder about the optics behind all of that and just how crazy you might want to drive your constituents. But is the alternative uh, also uh, a dead end for this speaker? Would, would Speaker Johnson 
be recalled or fired if he actually passed a clean CR with Democrats? You know, it's hard to tell about whether or not uh, Johnson's honeymoon is over at this point. Certainly, you're starting to see the, uh, the the sun set on that. Marjorie Taylor Greene went after him yesterday. Uh, kind yeah. of shades of, uh, of of the old Congress again. Uh, and and who knows whether or not he could make it to the end of a term, you know, by January of 25. But uh, right now he's got work cut out for him in front of him. Uh, this idea of splitting it up, it would only be a couple of different uh, deadlines, one in early December and then one in, in the middle of January. But that being said, I, I don't even get the impression he's making progress with the with his own Republican caucus on it. So uh, it's it's hard to for me to understand how you're going to implement that and how you're even going to get time to vote on it at this stage because um, the clock is really ticked down too far. Um, and what I find quite amazing is absolutely no word from the White House on their preferences. I mean, they've they've not tried to push through the supplemental in any way that I've seen. Uh, they kind of just left it to Schumer in the Senate, and and you know he's got a bipartisan majority for it. it that's not his problem. Mm -hmm. So unless the White House sort of puts some pressure on on the House of Representatives, uh, they they're kind of going to let him just stew. And I don't think that's good for the country. I think the president ought to weigh in and say. Huh. Get the CR done and get the con, you know, get the government funded and 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 let's go about the business of passing these supplementals. Well, I'll tell you, by this time next week, it's going to feel real. Like I mentioned, only nine days to go here, and we'll be, of course, talking it out with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel. Next, a big night for Democrats, a big election night. Rick and Jeannie will weigh in on Democratic victories that might tell us a lot about the way forward in 2024. Not to mention tonight's Republican presidential debate. We'll hit it all next with Rick and Jeannie. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Are we going to start referring to Ohio as a swing state again? Is it going purple? Did you see this yesterday? Voters enshrining the right to an abortion in the state's constitution and legalizing cannabis in the same day. That was a part of a good day for Democrats. You can certainly say look no further than the state of Kentucky where the Democratic governor. Yes, Mitch McConnell's Kentucky, the Democratic governor, Andy Bashir, wins reelection. Just look at what we were up against. Five super PACs. My opponent's super PAC, Mitch McConnell's super PAC, Rand Paul's super PAC, the Club for Growth, the Republican Governors Association, all running ads full of hate and division. And you know what? We beat them all at the same time. 
From last night and a busy night and a string of wins here for Democrats in elections around the country. Let's reassemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Been really looking forward to what both of you have to say here. Um, the narrative is a tough one, uh, Rick, for Republicans. And I wonder your thoughts on a state like Kentucky. I'm not really sure uh, I understand the Bashir phenomenon to begin with. But after what you just heard there, overcoming uh, Mitch McConnell, overcoming the forces of gravity. How did he do it? And, and maybe more importantly, what does it mean for the greater field in this next election cycle? Yeah, well, you know, like all things in politics, it all starts with money. He outspent his opponent by $20 million. So that helps a lot. Um, and yeah. he's been uh, 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 running as a governor who, as a centrist, um, there's a lot of value with being a centrist politician today, especially in some states like Kentucky. Uh, he's seen the state through some really tough times. Uh, and 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 so uh, every time we read a survey, the one thing that is in common is voters want uh, the parties to work together to find solutions. And he's been a solution-oriented governor. So give him his due, um, you know, uh, getting elected a uh, um, a Democrat governor in red state is very rare. We talked about this earlier this week about how there are only five states left where there's split governance, uh, where there are Republicans and Democrats in the statewide leadership, whether in Congress or in uh, constitutional offices at the state level. So it's a rare bird to find something like this. And the fact that he was able to do as well as he did uh, is a real uh, a real kudos to him for um, you know the kind of politician and the kind of politics he's playing. Well, the greater theme is certainly leaning in the direction of Democrats in the last 24 hours here, Jeannie, as we've seen in the midterms in a lot of special elections, the issue of abortion loomed large. And I suspect that you're connecting some dots here. It's not only what happened in Ohio uh, yesterday with the abortion vote, but also what happened in the state of Virginia. We'll have Rick weigh in on this, too. He's certainly no stranger to Virginia politics uh, but people are looking at the impact that the issue of abortion had. Governor Glenn Youngkin was talking about implementing a 15-week ban, but also what that means in the bigger picture for 2024, not just for Glenn Youngkin, but also that issue of abortion and how it might play for Democrats. How do you see it? It has played very well for Democrats since the overturning of Roe and the passage of Dobbs. There's no question about that. Every time abortion has been front and center and on the ballot, the pro-choice forces have come out and they have won. So now we see it in the red Ohio. It played big in Kentucky and to your point in Virginia. Interesting about Virginia, we saw Governor Youngkin trying to test out new language and a new way forward for Republicans and pro-life forces. He tried not to be defensive, but to go on the offensive, trying to talk about this 15-week limit. Um, the reality is, though, that once again, that did not succeed for him as it hasn't for Republicans across the country. And that means we are probably going to see in 24, obviously Democrats make as much as they can out of this, but we're probably going to see Republicans walk back a little bit. We've already seen that from Donald Trump. Fascinating. Here is somebody who wants to have it both ways. He's saying he's a moderate. This issue is going to hurt Republicans. He's going to take a, a, a stepped back approach on this. And yet here's the same man who, when Dobbs was passed, 
claimed credit for stacking the Supreme Court. So how he is going to walk that line is going to be fascinating. But the reality is abortion has helped Democrats from the start when it's been the issue front and center. But I would be cautious about reading too much of these results into 24. The reality is, is that a lot of what happened last night was about local and state issues. Andy Bashir is a very attractive candidate. He is a son of a former governor. To Rick's point, he spent an awful lot of money and he has been effective. That said, look at what he talked about when he stood on that stage for the first time. He talked about infrastructure, a bill that joined Biden and McConnell down there in that state. So this does bode a little bright light for Biden and the Democrats but they have a lot of work to do because you've got to get people out to the vote. This is a off off year election with low turnout, mm -hmm. except for people who are incredibly interested in these issues like abortion and marijuana when they're on the ballot. Yeah. Right. How about that? I did see a little bit of a line uh, in Virginia. I have to admit, Rick, I don't know about you yesterday, but are people being fair to count out Glenn Youngkin in this cycle? Some had concocted this idea of, Glenn Youngkin running the board on Tuesday night, a red wave through the legislature and then making a late arrival on the presidential trail. Yeah, kind of teased by Governor Youngkin himself, right? I mean, he set this up as, hey, I'm going to put all my chips on winning the legislature. Uh, I'm, I want to I want a completely unified government, the the Senate and the House in, in, in Richmond. And, and, and I'm not going to make any decisions about my future politically until I do that. Well, he didn't do it. And so the decision about his future kind of got made for him. Uh, and this is always the problem with setting those kinds of markers in the future. Uh, the, the, the Virginia race was incredibly close. Um, uh, Republicans actually picked up a seat in the Senate and lost some in the House. And so the bottom line is Democrats now have both chambers in Richmond uh, to stymie any initiative that the governor may have, you know, for the next two years of office. So uh, he's he's now trapped in sort of political purgatory uh, and uh, of, of to some degree of his own making. Um, uh, look, there's no question abortion played big in this. Uh, I, I would say uh, looking at these Ohio results, even more so than Virginia, there are a lot of turnout and 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 it, it's actually uh, almost historic for a off year election, uh, an off off year election. And um, you know, 3.9 million people voted in Ohio and 4 million voted in the midterm. That is outrageous. That's, you know, the idea that an off year could meet a midterm is is really something, you know, and I think what Republicans have to pay attention to is, you know, uh, Democrats have occupied the, the vast majority of voters in the cities. But with this abortion referendum, they were able to move that way out into the suburbs. And to me, that is something that, that could play important in the 2024 election. But um, mm -hmm. three groups, uh, uh, voters under 30 uh, and independent voters and women all vastly supported this uh, abortion referendum in Georgia or in Ohio. But all of them have, in those cases in Ohio, a 39 percent approval rating of Joe Biden. So you, you can't necessarily draw the conclusion that because they're turning out big for abortion in Ohio, that they're going to necessarily do the same thing for, for Joe Biden as president. Be curious to uh, ask you about the Trump effects in our remaining moment here, Jeannie. There was actually one big Republican win last night. May not have surprised anybody, but Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves uh, uh, beat Brandon Presley. 
was like a cousin or a nephew of Elvis Presley or something there. But uh, Donald Trump uh, went on Truth Social. Daniel Cameron lost. That's the one who lost to Bashir in Kentucky because he could not alleviate the stench of Mitch McConnell. He goes on to write, Tate Reeves, on the other hand, surged to a win after my involvement. Congratulations to Tate. Was this a win or a loss for Donald Trump overall, Jeannie? In his mind, everything is a win, Joe Matthew. But, you know, it, it was a loss. Listen, he endorsed Cameron as well. So I don't know why the stench falls on Mitch McConnell. But another bright spot, actually, for Republicans, we have to say, is New York once again. They win the county executive in Suffolk. They win a city council seat in the Bronx. New York, because the focus has been on crime, has been something that Republicans have been able to make hay of up here. And that is going to be something we're going to see a battle over in 24. So don't, mm -hmm. you know, Re Democrats have to keep their eye on that. Abortion, huge for Democrats. But crime and the issue of immigration and illegal migration continues to play big for Dem Republicans, rather, in places you wouldn't expect it, like my home state. So they, mm. we have to keep our eye on that because the numbers there are pretty astonishing, continuing what we saw for Republicans in the midterm. Day after analysis with Rick and Jeannie. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The House of Representatives still trying to figure a way to fund government operations beyond next Friday. Votes to censure the lone Palestinian American serving in the House, Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman from Michigan. This is not the first attempt that we've seen here put together uh, by a member of the Republican majority in the case of yesterday. It did get to the floor and it passed. On this vote, the yeas are 234 and the nays are 188 with four answering present. The resolution is adopted. That's the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Without objection, presiding. the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. And there you have it, 234-188. This goes back to uh, comments made by the Congresswoman and, in fact, a video that was posted on Twitter, which I will always call Twitter, I guess, that showed pro-Palestinian protesters chanting from the river to the sea. Let's reassemble our panel with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, uh, for their take on this. Jeannie, we heard a, a, a pronounced debate on the floor of the House. There were a lot of Democrats who came to Rashida Tlaib's uh, defense, talking about this as a freedom of speech issue. Should she have been censured? You know, it, it's really divided the Democratic Party um, in an important way. Um, I think there's two things. I'm of two minds here. On the one hand, I agree completely with Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader, when he says 
that the statements that she made, particularly in that video you referenced, or that she she didn't make them, she released them in this video, are deplorable. They are slogans that are destructive. They do not at all support what we hope would be the end for everybody, which would be some kind of two-state solution. They are polarizing, they're divisive, they incite violence. So it is really, really troubling to see that released by a Congress person. That said, I am of the opinion that when you go and you censure, you have to be very carefully, you're doing it only for reasons that are the most, most serious. And I agree actually with Ken Buck and some of the other Republicans on this. We have to be careful we don't get into a tit for tat where we are censuring people on the other side because we don't agree with them. I don't agree with Rashida Tlaib here. And by the same token, I don't think we should make censure a weapon that is used to try to hold people up whose speech we don't mm -hmm. appreciate. So I'm of those two minds here. I wouldn't have voted for the censure. I side with Buck on that. But the statements are deplorable, and I'm glad Hakeem Jeffries came out clearly and said that. Mm. It does, though, divide the Democratic Party. But you did have 22 Democrats vote to censure her all the same. Yep, that's right. And Ken Buck was one of four Republicans, as you mentioned, voting against the measure. Rashida Tlaib uh, spoke to her own defense on the floor. Here she is. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and, Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why, what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. Is that a fair question? Does it deserve an answer, Rick? Yeah, I, look, I think the answer was she got, um, she got censured and she didn't get censured by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene censure resolution. It talked about insurrection, things like that. I mean, Republicans said That's no right. to that. Democrats said no to that. That was fine. But she was censured for what she said. And and sure, sometimes she says nice things like what she just said about the value of life. And then other times she says things that are incredibly destructive and that promote political violence. And we talk a lot about promotion of political violence on this show and and mm -hmm. I think the Congress did the right thing by putting her in her place, censoring her. It's only been done, you know, a couple dozen times in the history. But when you are promoting a chant of from the river to the sea, which means the complete destruction of Israel, and you've sided right. with Hamas in the past, then then you are promoting political violence. And that we got to have zero tolerance for that. And, and And frankly, if anybody else does the same thing, they should be censured, too. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned it a moment ago, 22 Democrats uh, chose to vote uh, in favor of censure, Jeannie. They're all from different states. Uh, there were some New Yorkers in there. Uh, you've got Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida. Some of them you might have considered predictable, some of them not. What, what were they thinking of? You know, I, I think they are seeing what she released in the statement she's made as calls for the complete destruction of Israel. And even though she is a member of their party and they support her right to speak, they are very, very concerned about the rhetoric and the violence that can ensue as a result. You know, I think in my mind, what I try to think about 
is what should we do to advance what we all want? She's absolutely right. It was a heartbreaking statement you just pay, played. What is happening to innocent civilians in Palestine, in the Gaza Strip rather, is so heartbreaking. There is no difference between Israeli and, and Palestinian children or any children or people. That said, we have to expect a good deal from our leaders in the United States that they are going to be productive. And I think the members who voted to censure her on the Democratic side are looking at this as calls for violence that they just cannot go on the record, either turning a blind eye to or supporting. Um, you know, and this is, I don't think she is likely surprised by this. I do think this is a really important and difficult conversation to have all around, but violence does have to be condemned. And we do need to think about humanitarian assistance and solutions and being productive. And violent rhetoric is not the way to do that. Well, uh, in our 30 seconds remaining, I don't want to cut you off here, Rick, but I wonder if you think this puts it to bed, at least as a public uh, sort of fissure in the Democratic conference in the House. It could. Uh, it just depends upon her conduct and her uh, speech between now and and then. It certainly has put the squad, you know, AOC and her team on defense uh, and certainly not a good thing for going into an election year. Well, yeah, and members of the squad were standing with her or sitting right around her to support her while she was making that floor speech in her defense. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, we don't shy away from the tough ones here. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This day after the election night that went pretty well for Democrats is the narrative. And we're going to talk to Wendy and Mark Niquette about that in just a moment as Andy Bashir takes a victory lap. Daniel Cameron says goodnight, Kentucky. I ask that you pray for Governor Bashir and his team and for all of our Commonwealth. Because at the end of the day, win, lose, or draw, what ultimately matters is that we know that Christ is on the throne. Christ is on the throne, he said. And we thought Trump was on the throne. This is Cameron when he won the primary. A big thank you to President Donald J. Trump for his support and his endorsement of this campaign. Let me just say, let me just say, the Trump culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. Except it wasn't last night, as it turned out. Andy Bashir 
wins a remarkable race as a Democrat in Kentucky. And that's where we want to start our conversation with Wendy Benjaminson Bloomberg, uh, of course, Washington senior editor. And Mark Niquette is with us from the great state of Ohio, Bloomberg uh, politics reporter. It's great to see you both here. Uh, Wendy, your thoughts on that, the takeaways for Donald Trump on a night like that. He took to truth, by the way, and said that uh, Daniel Cameron lost because of the the taint or the stench or something of <laughs> Mitch McConnell. Of Mitch McConnell. Well, my goodness, what yeah. about the stench of Donald Trump? Well, yes, but Donald Trump doesn't think there's any no. electoral stench. Did on he that. play a big role in this campaign? Because we're going to next talk no. about how Democrats had a big night. No, no. I mean, Donald Trump really has his hands full with the trial, the New York fraud trial. He was, of course, on the stand on Monday. So he was not really campaigning for this one at mm -hmm. all. Um, and I'm not sure it often helped. Remember, in the midterms in last year, um, the people he campaigned for and the most MAGA candidates lost. And I think overall, what this election told us last night was that voters are certainly in favor of abortion rights. Mm. They are certainly um, interested in the Democratic brand. Whether they are, according to other polls, interested in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is the big unanswered question. Well, that's right. I, I, I use this race in Kentucky as an entry point, Mark, but I wonder your thoughts on some of the bigger picture takeaways from yesterday when we look at the state of Virginia, for instance. A lot of folks thought that would be, uh, you know, a red wave that sent Glenn Youngkin running into the presidential campaign, neither happening here. And of course, what happened in Ohio, Wendy mentioned abortion, and that does seem to be a big part of the takeaway from races we saw in all of these states. What's your view today? Yeah, I don't know how you can not say this was a good night for Democrats. Uh, in Virginia, Governor Youngkin went all in to uh, keep Republican control of the, the House of Delegates and flip the Senate. Uh, this was going to be his springboard, I think, to a, a run in, for president in 2028. That didn't work out. Uh, in Virginia, uh, the Democratic governor won what is clearly a, a very conservative red state uh, in a year where um, uh, it shouldn't have been good for Democrats, given uh, President Biden's low popularity. Uh, and in Ohio, you had uh, this uh, issue to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution uh, passed by 13 percentage points uh, in a state that Donald Trump won twice. Um, it's, it's more uh, trending a red state now. Um, and it, it just clearly demonstrated that uh, in, in the case of abortion, it's, a, it's an issue that can mobilize Democrats and independents and works against Republicans. So Republicans haven't figured out how to message uh, uh, abortion uh, after the uh, Supreme Court decision overturning uh, abortion and uh, abortion rights. And, you know, clearly the results in Ohio showed that, you know, Republicans, particularly suburban uh, 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 women, Republican women, uh, are going to turn out and, and vote uh, for abortion rights. Well, and the Mark, you're absolutely right. But in the yellow flashing sign for Democrats, Joe, is that in November 2024, when it's probably but not necessarily going to be Biden and Trump, mm -hmm. abortion rights will not be specifically on the ballot, maybe in a couple of states. But, um, you know, that's going then it's really not about an issue that, as Mark said, everyone is many, many voters are getting behind, it's going to be that choice that very few voters really yeah, want to it make. It could be six states if those ballot measures, I guess, are approved. So right. it's not like the whole country is going to be dealing with this as an issue. To your right. point, although the overhang of Roe That's and, true. And, and that national 
effect is still very real, is it not? It is. And the White House or the Biden reelect campaign has decided to make Vice President Kamala Harris the spokeswoman for abortion rights. Mm -hmm. And she is an effective advocate on it. She can bring it out. She herself is not as popular as even Joe Biden, I think, but she can really speak to abortion in a way that Joe Biden is very uncomfortable speaking about it um, Mm. because he's always been a little uh, doubting on abortion rights anyway. Mark Niquette, Wendy mentioned the Democrat brand, and it wasn't only abortion in Ohio. It was cannabis. What do you make of these takeaways when you put them together, and, and, and does it reshape your view of Ohio? Not for the general in a presidential race. Uh, I mean, I think um, Ohio will not be in play in in the presidential race. Uh, But I think it it shows how these issues can be motivating factors for turnout. Uh, And and abortion in particular, I think, will be uh, used in Ohio to try and uh, increase Democratic turnout and, you know, maybe work against um, some of the suburban vote. Um, The the supporters of issue one think having the... uh, a separate ballot issue uh, to legalize uh, recreational marijuana helped tr- drive turnout of younger voters, which helped them on the, the abortion issue. But the abortion mm-hmm. results were very interesting in Ohio. Um, you had 18 counties that voted for Trump in 2020 support the uh, abortion rights uh, amendment. Um, and in some cases, you know, pretty uh, um, in, a, in a big way. Um, and what's interesting about that is that a lot of these counties are suburban counties, like around uh, Columbus, the, the state capital, and in Northeast Ohio, uh, where sort of working class voters who, you know, used to be Democrats but came over to Trump and are, you know, pretty strong Trump supporters. They went for the uh, the abortion issue. Uh, so it just kind of shows how um, uh, abortion can be a factor in, in 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 as an issue in the race. But you know, as you said before. It's not it's not going to be a race about abortion. It's going to be a race about uh, the presidency and and, in particular, a a choice between Trump and Biden. Mm -hmm. Well, as we pull this into a bigger conversation about 2024, we had Mm -hmm. the New York Times Siena poll, uh, which freaked out a lot of Democrats here in Washington, (laughs) for lack of a a better uh, term, Wendy. And I'm looking at uh, Marquette University today. This is specific to Wisconsin. And these matchups, Nikki Haley, 53%, Biden, 44%, DeSantis, 50%, Biden, 48%. Not quite the the spread here, but Biden still beats Donald Trump. And I wonder how that will inform what you're going to be looking for tonight in this Republican debate, because the two aiming for second, at least in this hypothetical in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. could be Joe Biden. Absolutely. And that is what Nikki Haley is going to come out swinging on a lot of issues on this, because she is ascendant in the polls as DeSantis sort of either stays the same or drops. Um, But she really thinks she could be the last person standing Mm -hmm. if Donald Trump goes down. One of the things that was interesting in that New York Times Siena poll is that voters, especially independents, who would vote for Trump over Biden while he's under indictment would change their vote once if he ever became a convicted felon. That convicted felon may be the bar (laughs) that could switch people off Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case... 6% 6% is actually enough in a close election to to beat it. So if he becomes a convicted felon 
let's say it happens before the convention, somehow in some political movie that I can write someday, um, <laughs> you know, Nikki Haley becomes the Republican nominee, yeah. then Biden's in real trouble. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts in, in helping our listeners and viewers prepare for this debate tonight? It's going to be the third round. We've got five candidates on stage. And with the backdrop that we just uh, laid out here, who will have your attention tonight in Miami? Well, it looks like it's going to be a, a, a fight between uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, uh, as Wendy said, for, for second place to try to be sort of the Trump alternative. Um, so it'd be just interesting, you know, to what level the, that sparring actually takes place. But I'll be interested mm-hmm. to see, you know, how um, Nikki Haley tries to use the issue of abortion in, in this debate. Um, I mean, she has more, you know, staked out a more moderate position on abortion than um, Ron DeSantis, who supported a, you know, a six-week heartbeat bill uh, ban kind of uh, issue. And um, I, I think the, the results from last night sort of suggests that a majority of voters are towards the, the more moderate, you know, um, restrictions on abortion rather than, you know, the, the, the more strict, you know, six-week bans. Mm-hmm. Well, and after last night, it'll be really interesting to see if Nikki Haley and some of those others are as unapologetically pro-life <laughs> as they have yep. coined themselves in previous right. debates, knowing that it's a loser even in um, places like Ohio and Kansas and, and other something. conservative rock-red ribbed states right. that have rock-ribbed red states that, <laughs> <laughs> I got that have um, that have enshrined abortion rights. Well, it's going to be something to watch this evening. Uh, the debate in the spin room, and I appreciate your coming over to talk to us about it. Wendy Benjaminson uh, with us from Washington, Mark Niquette from Ohio after an important election night. Thanks to both of you for the insights today on Bloomberg Sound On as we add the voice of another expert here, and in fact, someone who knows these poll numbers probably a lot better than we do and has in fact prepared a presidential candidate for a debate like this. That would be Jim Messina. Jim, it's great to see you. Uh, Welcome back to Bloomberg Sound On, it's a pleasure, of course, CEO of the Messina Group, former Deputy Chief of Staff to President Obama. This is a tough world, I guess, if you're competing for second. My goodness, the front runner doesn't even show up. So what's the strategy tonight for a Ron DeSantis or a Nikki Haley? What would you tell them? Well, look, I agree with Wendy. I think it's important tonight to stand out. You are competing for one lane and one lane only, which is to be the Trump alternative. And what is killing these guys right now, Joe, is that there's too many of them. And so they need some of these guys to get out. They were happy that Pence got out last week. They need some more of these Mm -hmm. folks. And so they got to do two things. They got to look presidential and look like they can do this. And they need to stand up to the other potentials who are going to swing at them and, you know, try not to have an oops moment. And so if I was advising either DeSantis or Haley, I'd say stick to your own message first, Uh, kind of shuck off the the back and forth and don't let them hit you uh, and just try to look at the electorate and make your case why you should be the Republican nominee for president. Nikki Haley's got a major differentiator now that Mike Pence is out of the race, Jim, and that's firsthand experience with foreign policy. Wouldn't you just talk about Israel and Ukraine and Russia and China all night? 
Um, yes and no, Joe. On one hand, yes, but you know she she doesn't agree with the majority of her party on a couple of those issues, right? Okay. And so, you know she's always been she's always been more more pro engagement than the modern Trump Republican Party, yeah. who doesn't want to be in some of those places, and so that makes her messaging more difficult. I would absolutely attempt to you know talk about leadership and and move this to that, but you know voters tend to care way more about what you're going to do for them and why they should be mm -hmm. excited about you. And part of primaries is about excitement. And so she's got to figure a way to kind of continue to be the, the, the candidate of the moment, which she's done really good at. The other thing is, and I, I'm glad you raised that Wisconsin poll earlier, you know, the thing that's propping up Trump right now is the belief that he can beat Biden. And now there's starting to be data out there in Wisconsin, which for your viewers and listeners is now the most important state in America. Wisconsin is the state where when you run computer simulations, that's the state that gives you the presidency. And the fact that Donald Trump can't win that state uh, right now, but Haley and uh, DeSantis can, if they can't make that sale to the Republican uh, base, there's no sale to be made. I still think this primary is already over and they're competing for the VP, Joe. But, you know, tonight's the night. They've got to move here. You do believe the primary is over. You just answered my next question. So this whole exercise tonight is one in vain, just in case something bad happens to Donald Trump. Donald Trump has the largest lead of any primary uh, candidate in our modern lifetime. Now, let's not get too excited about that. The previous record holder was Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama in 2008. Hmm. Um, I, I don't <laughs> think we're going to compare DeSantis and Nikki to Barack Obama. Um, so, you know, I'm to quote the great movie line, there's still a chance, Joe. Um, but, I, <laughs> you know, he's over 50 in all these. In Ron DeSantis's home state of Florida, there was a poll out yesterday that showed Trump leading him by 39 points. Um, and so that just shows you the hill these folks are climbing up. And at some point, their their version of me is going to walk in the room and say, hey, can we have a private conversation? Do you think you're running for president or do you think you're running for vice president? Because mm -hmm. that is a whole different thing about what you say about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So you're saying there's a chance. Spending time with Jim Messina, I was uh, taken by a tweet from Larry Sabato. Jim, he's going to join us later on today on Bloomberg TV, and he was reacting to the Virginia election results, which I'd love to hear from you on. Uh, of course, a lot of folks thought this would be a, uh, a make or break situation for Glenn Youngkin. A lot of folks thought it would make a potential presidential campaign if Glenn Youngkin, the governor, could run the table, turn the legislature red. The opposite, of course, happened. And as Sabato writes on Twitter, clearance sale. He writes, Jim, all Yunkin for president, 24 merchandise, a free my pillow comes with all purchases over a dollar, <laughs> no returns. Did Glenn Yunkin uh, just surrender his chances to be president? Oh, absolutely. And I think he kind of had already because he wasn't running. And is that you know, just for this cycle or, or ever? Oh, I don't know about ever. Voters don't have that long. But, you know, he was styled as the guy that could unite the party, that the conservatives could get behind, but then the moderates who could win in the suburbs. And, you know, the problem you and I have talked in the past about abortion and that this was like, you know, the, the Republicans have been chasing that car for a long time. And then finally the dog caught the car. Well, the theory was Yonkin had a new message on abortion that could appeal to the suburbs and they could win on. 
And that message was clearly and roundly repudiated last night, both in, in uh, Virginia and Ohio. And so not only did they cut, catch the car, Joe, the car blew up on them. And so now everyone is sitting here saying, what are we going to say about abortion? Because the, the message we thought we had just didn't work in a place that we all thought it should. And Yonkin is going to take a whole bunch of that responsibility from a whole bunch of very angry Republicans today. Well, yeah, he was upfront about it. He told people that if if Republicans took power, they would uh, implement a 15 week ban. So let's extrapolate this. You're preparing a 24 campaign for president or you're advising it, Jim Messina. What did you learn last night that you might not have known otherwise that you can actionalize in the next year? Two things. One, um, it's interesting to look at who turned out last night. There wasn't massive turnout in these places. Both parties didn't get the historic turnout they got in the last couple elections. What that means is that both parties are going to have to worry a little bit more about turning out their own voters. And the second thing, which you and I just talked about, Joe, is I think the, both parties were waiting to see if abortion was still an issue. It clearly was an issue in Dobbs. It clearly was an issue in the 2022 midterms. But, you know, there was some view in both parties that maybe that issue had gone away. Not gone away. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look at the Ohio numbers, 13 points. Like, so nothing passes by 13 points. It passed by more than the free weed initiative. Like, come on. Uh, and then <laughs> Pennsylvania, Supreme Court race last night, and then in all those Virginia Loudoun County seats. So the other thing I, I learned is both parties are going to be talking about abortion next year as well. You mentioned Loudoun County, uh, not to get too hyper local for our listeners around the country and around the world, but trans uh, rights were just a, a very big deal in that area. It helped to get Glenn Youngkin elected, in fact, on having parents become more involved in curriculum and policies like these. Was that a rebuke to some extent? How do you read into it? Yeah, I think I'm not sure it was a, a rebuke. I mean, it could be. Um, I think that largely abortion became a bigger issue. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I also think that, you know, Yonkin wasn't on the ballot. You know, this is the problem the Republicans have had with Trump. It's a problem we had as Democrats without Obama on the ballot. Can you turn your voters out without you on the ballot? And so far, the data for both parties is it's hard. Uh, and last night, those Yonkin swing voters in Loudoun County went Democrat. And, you know, and so they're both parties are looking up today to say, is Virginia really a swing state in the presidential election? Well, we're looking at as many as six states uh, based on our reporting that could have abortion on the ballot in 2024. Obviously, it's not going to be a national uh, uh, vote, but it could be a, a national issue to your point. To what extent did Joe Biden's uh, successful outcomes state by state depend on abortion being on the ballot? Um, it's a great question. I don't think that's how it works because I think it doesn't need to be on the ballot. I think you know this will be the first election since Dobbs where the yeah. presidential election could be a referendum on abortion because you're going to have very clear difference. Trump has said repeatedly, you know, I'm proud to have appointed these judges. I'm the guy who got rid of Roe v. Wade. Biden has said repeatedly, I want to pass a bill to codify Roe v. Wade. And in those swing states, to your point, it doesn't matter if it's on the ballot. It's going to be a choice between two very different theories of the case, two presidential campaigns. 
uh, and these swing women voters that you know decide presidential elections in Montgomery County in Pennsylvania, in Milwaukee suburbs in Wisconsin, they are going to want to know about people's stance on these issues, no matter if it's on a state referendum, because largely abortion is a national issue for these voters. Uh, and they've proven that over and over in the last year. How about that? Uh, <laughs> I haven't asked you, asked you about the Donald Trump effect, and I, I don't know if you even see one. He was blaming, I think, as he put it, the stench of uh, Mitch McConnell for uh, Daniel Cameron's lost <laughs> loss in Kentucky last evening where Andy Bashir, the Democrat, uh, wins re-election. You're talking about some broad strokes here. Was Donald Trump one of them in this election or not? He was in the 2022 midterm election, Joe, the most determinative factor of how you were going to vote as a swing voter exit polls showed was your view of Donald Trump. Uh, and the problem the Republicans have with Donald Trump is he's an amazing turnout machine, but he tends to endorse these candidates that are hard to win statewide. And mm -hmm. uh, the Kentucky race was less about his candidate, more about the Democrats nominated a very conservative, Democratic, very successful governor and won by five points in a state where Donald Trump won by 20. And so that's, uh, you know, that's about good candidates. And so for 2024, both parties need to nominate people who can win in some of these states. And Trump keeps endorsing folks that are really problematic to win in general elections. Uh, and that's not Mitch McConnell's fault. That's Donald Trump's fault. And so I'm sure that this morning, you know, you have a very angry Mitch McConnell. Well, so what do you make of all of these polls uh, on many of them on a national level? But you mentioned uh, Wisconsin and we've seen uh, another one today, Georgia, the CNN poll. Do you believe uh, the conventional wisdom that Joe Biden can only beat Donald Trump or could a lot change in the next year? Oh, a lot could change. And it's not me trying to spin you, Joe. It's just history, right? Exactly mm -hmm. this time, 12 years ago, this weekend, the New York Times Magazine put Barack Obama on the cover and said he only had a 17% chance to win based on the polls. And he was toast. That was their words. Is Obama toast? He trailed in every single battleground state, as, by the way, Joe, did George Bush at the same time in his election cycle, as did Bill Clinton. So, you know, there's lots of bedwetting Democrats out there who are losing their minds. There's lots of cocky Republicans. Both of them just need to have a very big beer and realize, to Joe's point, all this can change. And we are a year away, which is a lifetime in American politics, just a lifetime. <laughs> and, you know, the issues could largely be very different. Who thought two months ago we'd be talking about war in the Middle East and who knows what's going to be going on with China? Just the issue set could be wildly different. And so I don't think these polls tell us really anything except for the country is probably not super jacked up to have an, a rematch. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting you use that term. I was at the White House this morning and spoke uh, with a senior official who referred to bedwetting and rubber sheets and was making the same point that you were, Jim. So to the extent that you can you know, get to the issues you can control, knowing that most people will probably vote first on the economy, you've already got the abortion matter, it sounds like, covered here. What do you do for the next year to try to turn around this disconnect between polling numbers and what this White House frames as strong economic data. 
Yeah, you do two things, Joe. First of all, to your point, they've got to get this economic message out. And it's hard. Swing voters only think about politics four minutes a week, and they're just not looking at the data the way you and I are. And so they got to continue to wail away at this. And it takes a long time. Joe Biden in 2020, you know, lost the question of the who's better on the economy, but won the presidency. You know, can he do that again? They don't want to try. They want to win the economic argument. And the second thing they got to do is make this a binary choice between them and Donald Trump. And that's how they won last time. And so the question is when they start that right now, they're just talking about their record, which I think is right, because they've got more work to do with these swing voters on it. But eventually they will pivot and be very uh, contrast forward message why they are better than Biden. Those two things have to happen uh, to win a presidential election for both sides here. How much does actually determining (laughs) your uh, rival factor into the way that you're presenting the candidate, not in terms of oppo or how you're going to run against somebody. But once you know, all right, it's Donald Trump or it's Nikki Haley or it's Ron DeSantis, this is the Joe Biden we want to put forward. You know, it doesn't as much as you think. When I ran President Obama's re-election campaign, you know, we obviously cared very deeply about who came out of the Republican primary. We were hoping it wasn't going to be Romney, but it was. But what we learned mm-hmm. was that you just had to control your own destiny. Uh, and you had to get your message out, and then you had to define your opponent. And, you know, the Biden campaign is advantaged by this primary process the Republicans are going through, because in a very competitive primary, they've all had to endorse the six-week abortion ban, which is just horrible politics. They've all had to endorse some of these other really controversial things like cutting Social Security and Medicare. And so, you know, that's helpful to Team Biden that no matter who comes out of that primary, uh, they have taken those positions. They're handing out uh, and planting dark Brandon signs in Miami today. <laughs> I want one of these lawn signs, I have to admit, Jim. Um, I wonder, though, if if that is going to be the angle here. Does Joe Biden need to scare people a little bit when it comes to Donald Trump, or is it going to be city on a hill? Uh, I've got the long view as a man of experience. What's the approach and the tone of this campaign? Well, look, if I was them, and thank God I'm not advising Donald Trump because I'd kill myself, but if I was, uh, I would tell him to take a page out of Reagan and do the city on the hill and try to paint the picture. He has no ability to do that, no sort of interest. And so their theory is going to be burn down Joe Biden. I just Mm. don't think that's how voters think about it. I think they want something to vote for. I think the lesson of Barack Obama, the lesson of George Bush, the lesson of Bill Clinton, the lesson of Ronald Reagan, is that positive matters as much as negative and more in some ways, especially Mm. when you're trying to do the two things you and I talked about, Joe, which is turn voters out of your party and do swing voters. Your party's not going to get super jacked about, you know, a year of negative. They're going to want to hear you say something. Uh, And so I think, you know, Team Trump has got to learn that lesson from last time. Well, this has been a seminar as usual, and you've been incredibly generous with your time, Jim. I'll ask you lastly about one thing that happened in Ohio we haven't really talked about, and that was the vote to legalize marijuana. Ohio now the 24th state to legalize the recreational use of cannabis. Why does it remain so controversial here in the nation's capital? It is crazy because people are still fighting old politics and you have a bunch of older members of Congress who haven't seen what their constituents want. To your point, it's all over the country, red states, blue states, 
my home state, red state of Montana did it. Like it's just not controversial at the state level. They're passing hugely. The only place that hasn't gotten the message is this 10 square logic free zone called Washington, D.C. Uh, and sooner or later, they got to kind of wake up and realize it. If only Joe to tax it, right? Because eventually to do some of the things like reduce the deficit, which we need to do, by the way, you're going to have some tax increases. And why not tax it, especially when 25 states have already legalized it? They won't even let federal banks deal in the money, which is just right. really stupid. Um, so hopefully they're going to wake up and, uh, and take yes for an answer. I'll be curious to hear if Joe Biden has much to say about that on the campaign trail moving forward. Uh, Jim, great pleasure. Good to see you. And many thanks, uh, as I said, for all your time. Jim Messina not only runs the Messina Group, former deputy chief of staff to President Barack Obama, who helps to orchestrate uh, the reelection of Barack Obama. It's always fascinating to get inside his head for a moment here as we get these little snapshots. We've got a year to go. But these little snapshots along the way in this campaign are what will make you a lot smarter to understand uh, the final results. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.